See You Now is a podcast highlighting the innovative and human-centered solutions that nurses are coming up with to solve for today's most challenging healthcare problems. Created in collaboration with Johnson & Johnson and the American Nurses Association and hosted by nurse economist and health tech specialist, Shauna Butler. Hey, See You Now listeners. It's summertime and the listening is easy. Fish are jumping and the temperatures are high, high, high. And like so many, We've stepped back from daily routines and we're on the road, off exploring to meet new ideas and people and joining and leading some of the most profound and pressing conversations in health. One opportunity for such action is to join the first ever Nurse Hack for Help Hitchathon, focused on addressing the foundational issues nurses and health systems face and reimagining a healthy, attractive work environment where nurses and our healthcare colleagues can thrive. The Nurse Hack for Health Pitchathon enables health systems to take direct, immediate action in the nursing workforce crisis by empowering nurse led interdisciplinary teams to ideate, create solutions, and pitch ideas that directly address well being and workplace challenges with the opportunity to receive up to $250,000 in grant funding to bring their ideas to life. Applications are accepted until August 18th and mentoring and educational support are available throughout the process. Visit nursehackforhelp.org. That's nursehack, the number four, help.org for more information and to apply. You can also find a link in today's show notes. In this episode, we invite you along on our adventure at the Aspen Ideas Health Conference, held in the open-air venues and large tents on the campus of the Aspen Institute in the stunning summer mountains of Aspen, Colorado. Aspen Ideas Health is known and appreciated for bringing together experts and activists, policymakers and community leaders artists and scientists from across a range of disciplines and viewpoints for stimulating and sometimes provocative exchanges. And in June of 2022, Aspen Ideas Health organized around six compelling themes, hope, disruption, get smart, influence, pleasure, and security. The conversations both on and off the stage were designed to share knowledge, evidence, and experience engage a broad audience in the issues that both shape our lives and challenge our times, introduce remarkable innovations, turn ideas into action, and chart pathways towards better health for all. Building on the recognition that the health of one depends on the health of all, the well-being of our healthcare workforce, specifically nurses, took center stage at Aspen as a global priority. In a panel discussion led by See You Now, we talk candidly about healthcare in crisis. Who cares when nurses leave? As you're listening, you might note that just as nurse Chris Freeze shares the troubling data on the well-being of nurses, the skies issued a loud warning thunder right on cue as if to punctuate his message of the storm about to hit us. The laughter from the audience is the irony of Mother Nature chiming in. And that bit of static that you hear in the background, that's the rain pouring down outside the tent. 
We're pleased to bring you this conversation and all the weather elements that are part of being at Aspen Ideas Help. Good afternoon. My name is Linda Benton, and on behalf of Johnson & Johnson and our panel here with us today, we welcome you to this session entitled Healthcare in Critical Condition, Who Cares When Nurses Leave? So if you're wondering why we're here, I want to give you a little bit of background to kind of explain our situation. We have been a really proud advocate for the nursing profession for literally 125 years because we know that nurses are the backbone, the lifeblood of healthcare, delivering healthcare basically in every corner of every community across the U.S. and around the world. And we know that the expertise that nurses bring to healthcare is critical to the quality of the healthcare that we receive and patient outcomes. And if you want to say it another way that's even simpler, for health systems to work, it takes nurses. Today we know that the nursing profession is in crisis, driven by foundational issues that they have faced for decades. They didn't just start when the pandemic started, they've been around for decades, and the pandemic just simply served to accelerate. And we're going to talk about that today. So we believe at J&J that it's absolutely critical to raise the real issues and the real challenges behind the nursing crisis with a broader healthcare-engaged audience to drive meaningful and transformative change. Because we know that the nursing crisis is not really a nursing crisis. It's a healthcare crisis that impacts all of us in this room, in this country, everywhere around the world. That's why we're here at Aspen Ideas Health with all of you today because we need new solutions, we need investment in the nursing profession like never before. And to make this really happen, it's gonna take all of us. How many of you are nurses? Raise your hand. Awesome, love it, love it. And next year we're gonna fill the room, I can feel it. How many of you are physicians? Okay, a few. Let's clap for them. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> Everyone gets a clap. Anyone in healthcare awesome? Social workers? Pharmacists? So now we know who we need to invite. Yeah, exactly. My mom would have Yay! Yeah. You can. Love that. Love that. Okay. Well, we thank you all for being here. We have another session happening at the Hotel Jerome with a really cool storytelling session kicking off at, I believe, 6 o'clock. So please join us there. But without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to our panel led by the fearless Shauna Butler, who is actually the leader of our See You Now podcast and just um, an incredible <laughs> individual that we're so proud to work with. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. You know, she says fearless, but I think I'm more courageous than I am fearless. But um, I am so grateful to be standing here with my colleagues to discuss and convey the critical condition that our healthcare workforce is in, specifically nurses. Let me repeat that title. Healthcare is in critical condition. Who cares when nurses leave? The headlines around the country are reporting and conveying the alarming rates of where we're seeing nursing shortages nursing vacancies and nursing departures, nurses leaving. And what's really frightening on all of that is how that so decimates our ability to provide the health care for an entire population in our communities. So I am Shauna Butler, I am a nurse, and I am obsessed with the economic and the business and the technology that is required to deliver our health care. I'm also the host of the podcast, See You Now, and it's a storytelling podcast that's focused on how nurses are solving our greatest healthcare challenges. And I'm very grateful to be joined by a few very important colleagues here. Chris Fries is an oncology nurse. He's a researcher. He's a professor. He is the director for the Center for Patient and Population Health Improvement. Have I got that right? No, you, you say it. 
Center for Improving, improving Patient, patient and Population Health. Health. At the University of Michigan School of Nursing, he is also a national authority on measuring quality healthcare, how we improve it. Karen Dale is also a nurse, and she is the market president for AmeriHealth Caritas, and that's a Medicaid-managed organization in Washington, D.C. She's also the chief diversity, equity, inclusion officer for all of AmeriHealth Caritas. We also have Chris Barsati with us today, an emergency physician in rural Massachusetts, and you serve and take care of patients in northern Massachusetts, southern Vermont, and upstate New York. He's the past <laughs> chair of the Trauma, Injury, and Prevention section of the American College of Emergency Physicians, and the program director for a firm here at the Aspen Institute with the mission of reducing firearm injuries. They are imminent, yeah, thank you. <laughs> they are eminently qualified and very well poised to help us have this discussion on the urgency of this healthcare crisis. And you'll notice that we are standing. The reason we are standing is because we want to convey in all manners possible the urgency of this situation. And also, this is not a time to be sitting on the sidelines. This is a time for all of us to be urgently taking action. Without skilled, and very well-prepared and very well-supported nurses, safe, quality, caring healthcare is at risk. And what happens is that the people that hurt most are those in rural America and our under-resourced communities. And there is data and evidence to back that up. So I've asked Chris to go through and give us the key facts and figures in, we've heard about the great resignation, well, there is the nursing great resignation. So I want him to share with us what those facts and figures are, why nurses are leaving, and more importantly, what we all need to do to be taking action to support our nurses, but also to help them have careers that flourish. So Chris, go ahead. Thanks so much, Shauna. Mm -hmm. It's great to be here with you all. So as an academic without PowerPoint slides, I have to do this a little <laughs> differently, but I just want to set a little bit of the stage as to why we're so concerned, just to get us all in an even playing field so we can have a really good conversation. So in the United States today, as we know, we have about 4 million registered nurses. 2.7 million of whom are actually practicing. So I want you to think about that gap, and there's lots of reasons for that. In 2021 alone, we lost 100,000 nurses out of the workforce. And some of that was related to planned retirement, a lot was related to unplanned retirement, and then we had a large number of individuals who left the workforce. What's most concerning about that number is the substantial proportion of folks under the age of 35 left the workforce. It was the largest age group to leave the workforce. It wasn't the retirees, it was folks under the age of 35. So we've heard a lot about the pipeline of healthcare professionals. I don't care for that term, but this is a leaky bucket of healthcare professionals. For all the work we go into train, we're losing a substantial number of people, and that's a new phenomenon in this last year. Survey data tell us that 32% of current registered nurses plan to leave their position in the next year. Whether they leave nursing entirely or they leave their system, that incurs costs and threats to quality and safety. And when we add that all up, the estimate is by 2030, we will lose 2 million years of nursing expertise in the United States. Those are the people that take care of your loved ones all across our country. So what else is going on here? I, it'll, it'll get better, I promise. The news will get better. But we are also losing nurse faculty. And so by 2025, 30% of our current nursing faculty plan to retire. And that data actually predated the pandemic. So we have to think that that might get a little bit worse. I'm going to make the data a little bit worse, and then we'll come back to some good stuff in a minute. But the, the other issue we have to think about is nurses' well-being. 
And this is a really ominous, ominous sign. sign? From yeah. <laughs> so my colleagues and I at the University of Michigan published a study in 2021 in JAMA Psychiatry that nurses, um, for, for uh, deaths among suicide, the rate of deaths among suicide is twice the rate for female nurses than the female population in the United States. So we have to own that and understand that. Um, so why do we care and, and what's going on underneath this? We heard a little bit about it today in some of the earlier panels. Verbal and physical abuse against nurses is on the rise. Estimates between 44% for physical violence and 68% of nurses saying they were verbally abused in the last year. We also know that over 3,000 healthcare workers in the United States died of COVID-19 directly. That's an underestimate and we sadly don't know the number of nurses because we never collected the data. 50% of nurses pre-pandemic in two states surveyed were telling us that their safety scores were below par and that the quality of care in their institution was fair or poor. So there, was, there were a lot of issues to Linda's point that predate the pandemic and then you add the pandemic on top and we have an issue. So finally, why do we care? Why do we need an adequate number of nurses to care for our loved ones? And I, I just wanna point out a couple of key things. Nurses are the sentinel system in a hospital to detect complications and literally save your loved one's lives after a complication, whether it be a surgical complication or a medical complication. And when we don't have enough nurses, the data are very clear that more people will die of complications in the hospital than need to. I also wanna point out that so many nurses now work outside of hospitals, in schools, and in communities, and we saw so many nurses mounting the emergency response to the pandemic in their local communities. So while the data that we're gonna talk about today often focuses on hospital nurses, so much important care is delivered in our communities by nurses, uh, in our schools, et cetera, identifying our kids at risk, identifying our loved ones at risk, and delivering services in their homes. So there's a lot to gain here, but we really wanna focus on what we can do and what the solutions are. So I hope that little context gives you a little bit of where we are today in, in nursing in the United States, some of the stakes at play, and some of the factors that we know might be at, at uh, play in the in this situation. Thanks. Thanks, Chris, yeah. So Chris Brasati, um, when you're hearing these numbers in your emergency department, can you put some stories and some faces and some names to yes. what those statistics yeah, are Yeah, absolutely. Like? Yeah. So first of all, a disclaimer, I am a physician and I understand fully and I accept the reality that <laughs> Gallup poll after Gallup poll, nurses have more trust of their patients than physicians. That's just how it is. And, and I know, and the reason why I care and I'm here is because the quality of my work depends on my team. And the quality of healthcare is entirely on the backs of our nurses. And without a healthcare team, I have less outcomes and my job satisfaction diminishes. So the physician workforce is dependent on the satisfaction of the nursing workforce. And so I'm not an expert in this. I mean, I have a lot of experience working in rural ERs, but I, I know a lot of experts. And so this morning I put a call out to a number of the nurses I work with. And I said, hey, tell me your stories. Like what's going on right now today? And there were a couple themes, right, that you articulated. First of it was control of time, right? The second one was safety and then patient complexity. Um, there are so many nurses that have left my ED, either through attrition, through moving up into a different program to become a provider, like a nurse practitioner, or moving into education because they don't have enough control of their time, both in the workplace and outside of it. You know, it's become a do more with less environment in healthcare. And so when you have a shortage of one nurse, then the nurse left behind are stretched further. And then there are less CNAs. So that workflow 
becomes much more concentrated. And so at work, they don't have this, the same amount of control that they do, and their jobs are more complex, and safety becomes an issue. You know, to speak to that, like, you know, this morning in our ER, one of our nurses was managing a, an intubated patient in sepsis on pressors, and a COVID patient on BiPAP, and then a hallway patient who was intoxicated and wouldn't stay in his bed and wanted a bedpan. This is way too much for somebody. And, and the thing is, she's now doing a double because there was a call off. This is not just one ER, this is most ERs. It's all around. The it's country. all around, all right? Around the country. All around the country. Rural, urban, mm -hmm. suburban, right. every single place. You know, you mentioned the concept of safety. There are right. many dimensions of safety, and we're talking about safety of the care that you receive. What about the, the safety of the staff and the team member that are there in the hospitals? You have so much expertise in that. Could you just speak to some of that? Because you know, these are really important statistics about yes. the level of abuse, physical, verbal, intimidation. Right. Yeah. So we know that, when, that a culture of safety is like the best remedy for contesting violence or preventing violence. And we know that environments that permit verbal abuse make physical abuse more easy to occur. And we know, especially since the pandemic, that we have experienced more both verbal as well as physical violence in our department. This year alone, there's been a half dozen uh, assaults, like significant assaults in our department. And also with you know, what's happening in the community, like we're, I'm an emergency physician, right? We're the U.S. healthcare safety net. So everything kind of trickles down to us. We see every emergency before everybody else because they come to us. But the, you know, in, in these times of, of division and contention between populations, especially last year and the year before with the ethnic inequities and the social justice movement, there was a nurse that I worked with who said that she was called the N-word more times in the first six months of that period than her 17 years before. And like, what do you, you, have, you cannot, we have to have a culture that we prevent this verbal abuse from escalating into physical abuse. And just, just to point a point on that, workplace violence is not new. I mean, I, I think the public has become more aware of it because of the reporting in air travel. We're seeing right. that with flight attendants. But this has been something that's happened in healthcare settings for a long time, but many times because of patient privacy, there, there are all sorts of aspects where these cases don't get reported. So again, just to, just to reiterate, a lot of the problems that we're talking about today, these are not new, they're just exacerbated, they're just worse. Karen, as a payer, this workforce shortage and vacancies, how is that impacting your ability to deliver the, the services to your members? It's impacting us in several ways. Uh, the first is, you know, at the height of the pandemic, many of our providers intermittently or for a longer period of time closed their offices. And so people went and found other work and they've not been able to get them all back. So that impacts the access. Our members can't get an appointment as quickly as they could previously. Uh, if they go, they're probably having more long wait times. And so um, there's a scarcity of time for the people we serve, where if I try once, right, and I took the time off from work, I'm in an hourly wage job, so that's money that I didn't make, I'm like, well, I'll just wait. And if it goes really badly, I'll go to the emergency room, which doesn't help the situation that has been described. Um, the other component is just the longer time to hire, even for mm -hmm. the teams that we utilize who are not front care workers, 
There are our care managers who are helping someone to navigate the health system, who are doing assessments and getting people the support they need to have a better journey in terms of health and well-being. And so that's another component. The other piece is in our hospitals, because of all the things that have been described, they're just like, we can't do one more thing, right? We can't do one more thing. And there are things that we would like them to do as we look to transform the healthcare system and have them do more value-based work, more aligned work around quality and outcomes. They're not unwilling, they're just stretched thin. And so that slows down the work to continue to improve our healthcare delivery system. So Chris, the vacancy, oftentimes the headlines, what you hear is there's a nursing shortage. And I think it needs to be really clear the difference between a vacancy, a shortage, and a departure, somebody leaving. When we talk about the vacancies, that's basically we have these positions and we're looking to hire, we cannot hire them. That doesn't mean that there's not enough nurses. So when we see these high vacancy rates, what is that a symptom of? What is it telling us when nurses are not interested in coming to the jobs that are on offer? So I think there's a couple pieces to this. One is to sort of, you know, we'll sort of work at the institutional level and build out. So one thing that is really important to understand is we've underinvested in our healthcare systems to actually create safe and supportive work environments for nurses. I think that's first and foremost. And so when nurses have gone through what they've gone through for the last two years, or they've had problems before that, it's easy if they have an opportunity to look for another opportunity. And that creates that vacancy, and then it, it now incurs on the employer to find a way to fill that vacancy to meet the bare minimum amount of care that we want to deliver in our system. You have to remember, we've been running lean on employees in U.S. healthcare systems for about 10 to 15 years now. We've really gone to mathematical models of the bare minimum of clinicians we need to staff our units. And so when there's this vacancy, there's this immediate disruption. What we also see is as people leave the, the unit, if you will, others follow. So they become dissatisfied because they're working short chronically and they want to move on to other opportunities. So there's, there's a cyclical compounding effect of it. The second thing that we have to talk about are nurses actually leaving the profession entirely, stepping out of nursing for a variety of reasons. One thing we know from, from health economics and labor economics is actually as the economy improves, nurses work less because they're often the second wage earner in their family and they don't need to work as much when wages are high. We don't know what that's gonna look like right now. It's a little bit more mixed situation currently. But nurses will leave the workplace if they don't need to work full time. And that incurs problems. And, and then the final piece is for them to say, you know, to Chris's point, I've been hit, I've been slapped, I've been abused. My employer hasn't stood up for me in these situations in many cases. And why would I continue to do that? And we have lots of anecdotes of nurses saying, I might as well go work in another sector of, of uh, labor because I'm not going to be abused on a daily basis, work short, have to work a 16-hour shift. So the, piece, the key of this is it starts in the employer's court, and they really need to look really carefully at what they're doing to ameliorate those immediate concerns on their units and departments. Uh, first and foremost, to stop the tide and, and stop the losses from occurring. 
um, then there are broader societal issues. Yeah, to and to make it a place where you want to work, where there's a lot of fun and there's a lot of joy, because um, I also really want to temper this from the standpoint of, it, it sounds really awful. I mean, it is, it is very, very, very difficult, but there are moments of joy that are indescribable, and I, I want to make sure that we don't lose that in this um, very sobering conversation. Um, Chris, in your emergency department, being in a rural, just in the rural hospital, in the rural area, we had a conversation about the challenges that you're having in bringing people in, hiring nurses. Can you share some of the, put some color on those stories? Yeah, so the, the, there is a constant pressure to fill the vacancies that, that show up. And um, there is now a new industry of travel nurses. And it's, it's very difficult for a nurse to be working side by side with somebody who's not as invested in the community, who's making twice as much as you are. Um, and this is actually incentivizing nurses who want more control of their time um, to then leave the workplace that they're at and go someplace for a few months. Now, this is not a sustainable model long-term for them, and they recognize that. But the, unfortunately, the vision has become shorter and shorter and shorter, right? It's like, what do I need to do right now to survive this, this stage in my life to get to the next stage until I figure that out? Because the stress of the workplace are, are traumatizing. Yeah. Um, and so, but the thing is, the flip side of that is when you have a, a cohort of physicians and nurses working together, it's a very satisfying environment. You know, you come together, and in some ways the pandemic was, at the beginning, was very resilient for us because we felt, one, closer together, even though we were scared, right? And our community supported us. And, and the thing is, like, some people are actually a little bit nostalgic for those times because we, it was more cohesive. But the, the point is that in rural areas like anywhere else, we have a shortage, and it just stretches the team further and further. So the vacancy issue really is an employment issue. And as you said, it really starts with the employers being able to figure out what is that work environment, that workplace where nurses are attracted to come, where they feel supported and protected, and where they feel like their careers can grow and flourish. The other part is a shortage. And the shortage really is driven by demographic trends. Um, we have an aging workforce. We, we know that they're going to leave. We have an aging population. We know that they're going to need an awful lot of um, care. And I think that that's one thing that we always need to state is it just takes a lot of humans to take care of other humans. This work is very labor intensive. And you shared with us a statistic of how many nursing educators are leaving. So let's give a little bit more color on, you know, because oftentimes people say, well, we just need more nurses. This is absolutely true. I don't want to dissuade anybody, but I also make sure that we understand the vacancy. But there's a real problem in trying to continue to build this pathway and uh, the pipeline and patch up all of the leaks on the pipeline. So provide us some color on what's going on within how we educate the next generation of nurses. Yeah, so the analogy here, you've all seen that video of the woman raking the sand on the beach trying to move the water as the waves keep crashing. I mean, that's, that's what we're doing here. We're, we're, you know, everyone's saying we need to, we need to add more nurses to the workforce and we need to you know, expand nursing schools. And I believe we probably do need a little more slack in the system than we currently have, and that's important. But if we're losing the youngest group of nurses faster than the oldest group of nurses, I want you to reflect on that for a moment. When, we're losing, when the group of nurses under the age of 35 are the largest group that are leaving relative to those who are 65 and older, that points to another problem. So we need to fix that, so we'll come back to that. But with, with regards to what we can do in education, I think a couple of things. One is, as you point out, we talked about earlier, the faculty shortage that is looming. You get paid more to practice than you do to teach. And so 
my school and other schools across the country struggle to hire faculty to teach our students, number one. Number two, we also need expert nurses in schools and hospitals and communities to train our students. We're still in a very much of a preceptorship model. You need to learn from another nurse. And as those nurses leave, we simply don't have the slots for, for folks to come in. The third piece, this is a more optimistic, I'm gonna give you a little bit of optimism here. <laughs> I feel like Debbie Downer and the thunder is coming. But we have learned, this is, a, this is serendipity, we learned, we had some data before the pandemic, we learned in the pandemic, we can move a lot of training to simulation, high quality simulation. And we have similar outcomes. Our nurses are passing the licensure rate at the same uh, time. The employers actually say they're better prepared because they can practice more high-risk situations in the simulation lab. So we've moved a lot of our curriculum to simulation. So that's a promising trend that allows us to bring more nurses to the fold. Final one is partnerships between health systems, government agencies, and schools of nursing to boost the faculty salaries, to open up the slots, and to incent senior nurses to stay and continue to work with our students. I think that's a promising area. We're starting to see a little bit of that across the country, not as much as I would hope. Well, and when you, when you think about it, your senior nurses are frequently your most experienced. They got a lot of clinical intuition. Who better Absolutely. than to be teaching and bringing people in and having the patients to, to really help people learn how to take care of other people, and particularly in high-risk situations? Karen, it always comes back to dollars. You know, you're, you're in that payer space. When you are taking a look at all of these aggregated workforce issues. What are you seeing as the root problems that we need to be thinking about and addressing for making sure that we've got the workforce needed to take care of the people who are currently with us and about to come on, online needing our care? Sure. Nurses want to have options. The younger nurses in particular want to have options. So when we interview some of our younger nurses, one thing we had to do was we had to reduce from five years to three years right, mm -hmm. of experience, because we weren't finding anyone with five years. And so we have attracted some younger nurses. What they say is, well, what's the career path, right? They don't want to just be a care manager. And no human being wants to feel locked in to something that doesn't have additional potential for them to pursue their passion, for them to feel like they're growing. And so in this reimagining the workspaces, we've got to think about that and have conversations about that on the front end so that they see the opportunities. When we're looking to hire, one of the things we're always talking about is, we don't want this to be the end. We want you to keep thinking about all the things that we do in a managed care organization that a nurse can do. A nurse can be a chief quality officer is a nurse. All the data components, all the thinking about how to have better patient experiences. I mean, there's just so many things. And when you start having a different conversation, it opens things up. So career path is one. The second thing is, I really believe that we're not leveraging to the extent that we can the non-clinical professionals so that nurses are focused on the things that they are uniquely licensed to do. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of information that tells us that the other people who support them, they work really well as a team. So even in our insurer environment, the nurse does the care management doing the assessments that must be documented so we can maintain our accreditation. They're surrounded by a team of community health workers, pharmacists, uh, dental director, chief medical officer who can support them so they don't feel like they're being stretched to do everything. 
they feel like they do the things that are uniquely important for them to do, and that they have this team that does a lot of the things that helps them to work efficiently and to do what they love doing, really. So thinking more about who else can be on the team that relieves some of the stress is important. And on the education piece, a really important data point here is, and correct me if I'm, I hope I've got this right, 80,000 qualified applicants are applying every single year to our nursing schools, and we can't accommodate them. We are saying no. So it, it is very interesting that even though you hear these headlines of how challenging and difficult the work is, um, we have a generation coming up who wants purpose. They want to be in a place where they're helping people. They want to be, um, you know, oftentimes we focus on the helping piece, but this is really cool science stuff. We do a lot of really cool technology. Um, there are a lot of uh, the human complexity where we're bringing systems together. It is an awesome experience as a career and so many different things you can do. And people are recognizing that. Okay, Chris, 80,000 people that we're saying no to? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> Mr. University of Michigan School of Nursing, what are we doing about this? So, yeah, we turn 8 to 10 away for every qualified at the University oh. of Michigan. 8 to 10 applicants who are qualified. So, and, and, and our applications are surging, right? This is my 25th year in nursing this year, and I've never been more proud to be a nurse. And people are picking up on that. And retired nurses reactivated their licenses during COVID and we gave shots together and that was some of the best nursing care I've ever yeah. delivered. So people know that and they wanna be part of that. And so how do we create um, different ways to bring people into the fold and not lose people? And so I think we do need some legislative reforms. I think we do need specific funds for nursing faculty. Believe it or not, that's a solvable problem. Nursing faculty in the federal budget is like a thumbnail. We can do that, folks. That's like not hard stuff like some of the other stuff that Karen has to deal with. So we can do that and we can incent um, to have enough qualified faculty on the school side and enough expert clinicians on the clinical side to stay with us in whatever role they want to stay with us to be that expert mentor. And that's gonna give us more opportunity. I think the other piece is uh, we have a lot, this is inside ball, but the boards of nursing in different states are a big um, roadblock in many ways because they, they dictate who can teach what, how many slots you can have, et cetera. And so we really need to come together as a community to say, if we want a different future for our patients, our families, our kids in schools and our communities, we need to kind of lift this all together because one piece of it isn't gonna solve the problem. So I, I wanna see a bit of regulatory reform as we think about some of these other cool opportunities that we have. So that's the education piece and, and continuing to build our pipeline. When we talk about, we hear this phrase all the time, retain our nurses. I want you to stop using that, please. Um, we want you to attract and to have these nurses flourish and thrive in the, the workforce. And I think that that's part of it is when we think like retain, hold on to like, you know, what can we do as opposed to what is it going to, what do you need in order to, to thrive, to move to the next step, to have that career that you feel like is growing? Um, Chris, what are you seeing? I mean, what are the things that you've seen that have worked really creatively so that the nurses in your organization want to be there and want to continue to grow and um, really help your community and your institution be respected and build eminence? Yeah, so when you're, when you're working as a team caring for a sick patient, you have a lot of support. You have, 
you have CNAs and you have people doing EKGs and then the nurse can do his or her job. And it it's actually creates this space where we're all doing something bigger than ourselves. It's very satisfying. And that keeps people invested emotionally and psychologically in this work and they, and they don't want to leave, right? They want to come back to that and that's why they came back in the pandemic. They want to be part of something bigger than themselves. So as long as we can help keep nurses supported in the work that they need to do, then they have less stress and they want to stay. You know, for example, making sure we have enough CNAs to cover the, uh, the other parts. And what, right now what happens if you have one CNA and you have a psych patient who needs a one-on-one -on -one titter, that CNA is pulled and now you have to, the nurse has to do the EKG and get super stretched. So when, when, when leaders in the healthcare system come down and spend time with us in those hard moments, then they understand better what we need. I mean, in my opinion, there should be a requirement of X number of hours bedside with your staff, so you, especially in those hard times, so they know what it's like. They can like walk in our, in our shoes, yeah. right? And then they feel those trigger points, and then they know where to respond. And they'll get that feedback in real time, unadulterated, that is the best and most precise. So I want you to be thinking about your audience questions, and there are points for your questions. Nurses know how to take care of people. We have chocolate, so um, just, be, just be prepared. But before we go to any of those questions, um, we've given you, you know, a lot of sobering details and, and a lot of uh, color on, on what it is um, that nurses are experiencing right now. But more importantly, what we need you to know is what needs to be done. Um, so when you think, Chris, about who or what are barriers yeah. and what would we like them to do? What do we need them to do differently and how soon do we need them to do it? Sure, so I think this is a great bookend to some great talks we had earlier with, with Dr. Lawrence earlier and then the, the, two, the three system CEOs who really brought vision and passion to the work. And so I'm gonna start there and kind of try to be the bookend of some of this. So I have three kind of big issues here. Systemically, we really need to go back to principles of authentic leadership and we need our leaders, to Chris's point, to listen actively to the front line on what the concerns are and have that drive the quality and safety agenda for the next five years and not the other way around. And that's not happening currently and that needs to happen. And there's a lot of good literature on that. Pat Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team, the number one issue is trust. Mm -hmm. And we really need to restore trust. What I'm seeing now is kind of reminiscent of the 90s. So active listening, acting on the issues, establishing trust. The second is the policy piece, which is connecting the workforce leaders to these, these policy proposals. We actually have a piece in the New England Journal of Medicine next week. You've got state and federal choices you can pick. You can pick the ones that you like in our paper, and you can talk to your legislators, either at the state or the federal level. The good news is there's action on both of those. You, if you want to increase the pipeline and the pathways, you can do that. If you want to do more to keep nurses at the bedside, you can do that. I think the other piece is I'm gonna to turn to Karen in a minute, but I really see the opportunity for novel payment models. Right now as a leukemia nurse, if I care for someone with AML for 12 hours and I'm in that room every hour drawing blood and checking on them and monitoring their tumor lysis, the hospital gets the same amount of money as if I had an ap a patient with an appendectomy. And that's not, we, that doesn't make any sense. But we're paid as part of room and board and health systems do not get paid for the high quality intense nursing care that we offer. I want to reiterate that. Mm -hmm. Nurses are seen as cost centers. Mm -hmm. They are not seen as drivers of value. They are not seen as sources of revenue. If you get your bill at a hospital, you're not gonna see the nursing yeah. care fee. 
So, so I, would, I would like to see some more novel payment models with third-party payers or CMS to really develop some novel programs where we're paying for nursing value and quality as opposed for room and board. And going back to this, when you think about, you know, if you, any organization, what do you do with your expenses? You're always trying to cut them. What are you trying to do with your revenues? So as long as nurses are considered over on the um, expense side, we are always going to see this type of phenomenon. So Karen, have you got some suggestions? What do we need done? Uh, I would like philanthropy to consider the investment in communities um, and in getting more educators available. When we look at the Department of Labor statistics, it tells us that blacks and Hispanics lag behind whites and Asians in terms of economic security. We have a huge opportunity to go to these communities and build the interest and the pathway for more people to both become those supporting um, non-clinical people, peer support, doulas, uh, community health workers, so that nurses have the support. So to me, it's a yes and. Yes, let's get the support for nurses, and let's get more people who are there to be supporters of the team. We also should be thinking, why is it that at the federally qualified health centers, for example, those physicians that come and serve, you know, sometimes it's three years, five years, uh, they get their loan forgiveness. And, and do we think about that for nurses? Um, Amen. So thinking, you know, looking at things through that lens, when it comes to um, the hospitals and some of the systems, uh, I, I believe diversity matters and diversity matters in leadership. So looking at the board members, do they, are they diverse enough to understand and appreciate the perspective of the multitude of opportunities they have to work better in communities, to work smarter in communities, to leverage digital health? I mean, there's just all these things. However, if we're just looking at the dollars and cents and the bottom line, you're missing that opportunity. And I find that when you have a more diverse set of leaders, CEOs, all the C-suite, that you get a different level of thinking about what is possible. And I want you to pick up on that. Um, one of the most important things that we can have as far as good, quality, caring, you know, safe type of care is making sure that our workforce represents the communities that we're caring for. And so when you think about building our pipeline um, in the education, what, what are the things that need to be done? Where are the places that we need to go? Who are the partners that we need to have so that the workforce that's being trained matches the communities that we take care of? There's lots of opportunity. Think about your state Medicaid agency. They usually align with CMS's triple aim or quadruple aim, right? Mm -hmm. Those conversations across the various today's silos aren't happening. And, and that's a great place to have the conversation because that's the ultimate funder. The Medicaid agency is funding the managed care organizations, right? So having more of that conversation, some of which happened during the pandemic, but beyond the crisis, we need to be building more bridges and conversations and co-authoring solutions versus, you know, kind of sitting back here waiting for someone else to start the conversation. And a really important data point, there's been so many wonderful discussions about maternal health, newborn health. Fifty percent of the children who were born in this country are born with Medicaid coverage. So again, this and is climbing. and climbing and climbing. And, climbing. Yeah. Um, and so what is it? 87 million people covered by Medicaid? Oh, 150 million. 100, thank you. 87 is children. Maybe that's what it is. But it's a, it's a huge portion of our citizenship. So 
all good things that you said, not good, but good things to think about in terms of how payment happens. If healthcare were any other type of business, we would be out of business, right? Because what we are providing is sick care, and we're not willing to let go of all the complexity that we have introduced that we could shed. So there's huge administrative burden on providers. There's huge administrative burden then pushed down to the other people that are in the healthcare delivery system. So what I'd love most is for us to be thinking about how do we change that, right? And payment reform certainly helps to do that. When we look at things like bundled payments, mm -hmm. it says let's focus more on the outcome. So we're, you have an incentive or an upside. Sometimes uh, entities get to a point where they've um, matured enough in their systems and structures so that they can take on risk, so they can even have a bigger upside. There's a reluctance to move into that. Um, and I can understand for the providers who are treating more vulnerable populations because they tend to be less resourced. CMS and CMMI were doing good work to think about how to do more upfront payments in those types of situations, how to collect information to understand the risk profile of who's being served, and really close gaps, right? And also think about more investing in those practices so that they're ready to eventually take on risk. So those are all good things. However, there are a lot of players, and I'm just going to call it out, that have more ability to do more and will not change their structures. And those of us with the ability to influence need to push harder on that. She makes wonkiness look so sexy. <laughs> Chris, did you want to add, um, what, you know, when you're thinking about what, what needs to be done, who's the barrier? Well, so the, it kind of speaks to a couple of the issues you guys both brought up. There is this, this sensation, like as, as nurses being a cost center, right, of a commoditization of healthcare and a fragmentation of healthcare across the entire spectrum from inpatient to outpatient. And our interest is the care of our patients, their families, and our communities as nurses and physicians. And one of the, the barriers is that access to benefits and care is just so challenging. Um, we don't have enough providers in the community. And so patients and the communication between the providers is really difficult. Yeah. And so that patients don't understand the complexity of their care plan. And they, they end up coming up frustrated to their providers not knowing what to do. And so that adds stress to, to their, their workflow. Um, so if we can do things to increase access to care. Full practice authority? Yes. yes. <laughs> access to care? I would love to hear from my physician colleague saying that. <laughs> Um, why don't we go ahead and move to um, any of the questions from the audience. We've got a microphone back here. And please, um, introduce yourself when you're asking your question. Uh, Adrian Billings, rural family physician in, in Western Texas. To the nurses in the audience, thank you all. You, you, you all are heroes, and we, we definitely know that um, healthcare is a team sport and uh, one of the most vital, if not the most vital, um, occupation in that team is, is you as the nurse, so thank you. Um, thank you for this really thoughtful discussion. Just to put on your radar, um, the Nurse Corps, and this might be a legislative funding uh, potential. The, the Nurse Corps is a loan repayment program for RNs that are willing to go work at safety net um, facilities such as federally qualified health centers, critical access hospitals, and some other places. Chronically underfunded, just as all the other National Health Service Corps portfolios are, but certainly this you know, might be that moonshot time where we look at trying to, to legislate and lobby to expand you know, this vital, chronically underfunded program to get more, uh, more nurses in the yeah. workforce. Absolutely. Thank, so, you. thank you for what you do. Well, 
I, I wish I knew your name. I wish I could like do one of those magician things where I know your name, but the lovely lady in the orange, yes. My name is Mark Thomas. I work for Partners in Health. Um, and I, I want to address one of the things that you said. It's so key um, when in my former position as a chief nursing officer for one of the hospitals, um, when you're saying, and I hope we can really focus on this and I don't want to get lost, is there should be a requirement for execs or leadership to be at the bedside. And I'll tell you, um, one of my greatest regrets, and I will tell you right now, and I'm trying to see how we can, is that um, towards the end, I spent more time at the bedside. In the beginning of my career, I was at the bedside and then got more administrative. And then, as towards the end, going especially with pandemic, got to the bedside and the feedback that we got, and it's not just feedback, one, is the nurses felt supported. They're like, wow, you're with us, you see it, and you're taking that risk, and you're not sending me into the fire without you going with us. That was one thing. We went a couple of times, and it's saying, it's also, it broke down the silos where nurses, our team actually said, hey, um, now it felt like more personal, because now we were colleagues, I couldn't go all the time, but when we did go, they were like, hey, this is an issue right here. What do you think if we do this? And this is an issue right here. What do you think is it? Well, this is an issue. So they opened more dialogue because those at the bedside had more information rather than us sitting in an office trying to figure out, yes, yeah. there's cost, but then there was, there was savings in there because they were also seeing issues of patients. And I don't want that to get lost because that's such a key part because if we're the advocates, on the, you know, we keep saying who's at the table. Well, yeah, I'm a nurse now and I'm the, you know, CNO and I'm at the table, but if I'm not connected to the bedside, then what am I advocating for? And I just want that to be really Thank highlighted. Thank you for lifting yeah. that up, yeah. And so the, the answers are out there in the communities. We just need to be looking with all eyes and, all, and, and listening with all ears and to the innovators who are the people working at the bedside. And you'll find cost savings, you'll find stress reduction, you'll find the answers there once the communication lines are open and clear. We have a health innovator up here who needs to ask us a question. Just as we transition, we'll also, to Dr. Ranney's point earlier, we'll find the solutions that actually fit the clinical problem as opposed to force feeding it to the clinicians, which is what I'm seeing a lot of now, sort of top down, we'll implement this and we'll evaluate it later, as opposed to working with the clinicians at the front. Hi, my name is Kwame Liddell. Um, I'm the, pre I'm the founder and CEO of Nutrable, an app that delivers food to patients as soon as they get discharged from hospitals. Um, in the past, I led hospitals and nursing leadership. And one of the things that we struggled with was we're finding team members, nurses, uh, especially uh, new grads, and thinking about what kind of education they need to come into our, our system. And something that we considered, we had a, a bachelor's degree requirement uh, for new grads, and we lowered it to an associate's. And we really didn't see much of a difference but between the patients. And I know that the trend has been for especially larger health systems to have that bachelor's degree requirement. i just like to hear you guys' thoughts, especially in thinking about uh, bridging the gap in the workforce in that uh, education requirement. We have a lot of thought about that, but I'll let Chris take this so, one. <laughs> so, very, so very briefly, Disclosure, I published one of the studies that has led to this. I really think of that differently now, that it's about institutions that invest in lifelong learning, invest in pathways for nurses to be part of the team and move through their career as opposed to everyone must have this. And also from an equity lens, meeting patients and consumers and, and clients where they are with the people that are best poised to serve them. We don't have the luxury of hierarchical structures and gatekeeping. We don't have that luxury anymore. I don't know if we ever did, but we certainly don't have it now. And as long as people are well supported and trained and mentored, 
I believe that a nurse in this in the country can basically step in and be where they need to be with with all those good supports. So I'm I'm glad you're doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So in closing, there are a couple of things that uh, the calls to action that I wanted to make. And as clinicians, we we're obligated to do this. The first thing is get healthy, get healthier, stay healthy. We learned during the pandemic, flatten the curve. And it's also true now. Um, we want you to be healthy. That is the best solution for everybody. We want you to know that when you need care, we are here. We are here. But if you can help us out by staying healthier, that is a really good win-win solution. The second thing, vote. If you have not been voting through the lens of health, um, our, our, one of our colleagues could not be here with us today, Julie Kennedy Eilert. Um, she's dealing with a medical situation, so please send her really big energy. She is the Chief Experience Officer for Biden Health in Eastern North Carolina. The, the things that she talked about very much, we need really good broadband that is affordable all across anywhere. As we move to more and more digital health, we do not want to um, increase the, the gaps that exist in healthcare. And she also talked about how important it is when you think about um, voting through that lens, please expand Medicaid to all of these different, why are we seeing so many right. hospitals closed? She gave me really great statistics on that. And then the other part too is that um, we need to invest in nursing. And I wanna quote one of my colleagues today who said it best, investing in nursing is investing in humanity. So if you um, are in government, you're in foundations, you have grant dollars, you have investment dollars, investing in nursing is you will get, when we talk about ROI, there's return on investment, but there's return on inspiration, there's return on innovation, there are all sorts of eyes that go with that. One of the, the other things that we wanted to make sure and share with you is just how important it is to have business partners. This workforce issue is a really challenging issue, and we have seen so many other industries who also deal with complexity, who deal with data, who deal with sensitivity, who have a 24-hour workforce. And we need those leaders who have been very successful in managing and, and having those workforces flourish. We need your playbooks and we need your partnership. So with that, I want to, um, again, thank this panel. And I also want to thank Aspen. Nurses are frequently not in the consequential decision-making. They're not frequently featured as subject matter experts. And so I'm very grateful to Aspen and to J&J &J for leading the way. And I invite you all to do that. Please come up, come get some chocolate, ask us questions, and stay healthy. A huge thanks to our panelists, nurses Chris Fries and Karen Dale, and physician Chris Barsotti for joining us live on stage in Aspen, and to Johnson & Johnson executive Linda Benton for welcoming us and this critical conversation to the stage. To watch this and all Aspen Ideas Health Sessions, check our show notes at seeyounowpodcast.com for the links to the videos. As we shared in this conversation, our healthcare workforce is in urgent need of action, support, reimagination, and solutions that design for and build a safer, healthier workplace where there is joy, protection, career pathways, and where our healthcare workforce can flourish. There's a lot going on this summer, and you probably have a busy summer schedule that hopefully includes some relaxation, rest, and play, and to accompany you on your summer adventures. Be sure to subscribe to and share. See you now 
so you and your friends don't miss any of our summer features, including another episode recorded at Aspen Ideas Help, a stirring and terrific storytelling hour about what happens at The Point of Care. For See You Now, I'm Shauna Butler. Have a safe summer, and thanks for listening. Nurses are transforming healthcare through innovation, compassion, and leadership. And Johnson & Johnson is proud to continue its 125-year commitment to champion nurses through recognition, skill building, leadership development, and more. The American Nurses Association is dedicated to building a culture of innovation. Nurses improve the lives of patients and communities through innovative thinking, empathetic connection, scientific rigor, and sheer determination. ANA is proud to support and advocate for our nation's most valuable healthcare resource, our nurses. For more information on See You Now and to listen to any of the earlier episodes in our library, visit seeyounowpodcast.com.